Hello, welcome to this episode of Biological Woman's Hour. I am absolutely delighted to be bringing you news from Ireland, USA and here in the UK. We're going to kick off in Washington DC with the formidable Cara Dansky talking about a day of action for women throughout the United States that will be centred on the White House on the 8th of March. Cara Dansky, how lovely it is to see you. Um, I thought I'd have you on today so we can talk about this picket that's going on. Uh, what is it and uh, why are you involved? Thanks so much for having me. So the picket on March 8th was inspired basically by a conversation that I was having with a friend the day after our new president, President Biden, signed an executive order that is set to effectively erase women in US administrative law. It happened during this phone call where I was sitting outside my apartment and I was feeling very depressed about this order. And I was talking with my friend and all of a sudden I had this image in my mind of American suffragists standing outside the White House carrying signs, one of which said, Mr. President, how long must women wait for liberty? And I thought, we need to do this. Those suffragists were largely Democratic women who were picketing a Democratic president during a war, and they got a lot of criticism for it, but they stood up for women, they did it anyway. And I thought, we need to do this. Literally, Mr. President, how long must women wait for liberty? And so we're doing it. Um, this friend that I was talking with got very excited about it. She got inspired and she went with it. And now we're very organized. We have a ton of volunteers. We have a ton of women who are interested in coming and we're picketing the White House. Amazing. And when is that taking place? March 8th, roughly between the hours of 10 and 2, Washington, D.C. time. Okay. And, and Women's Day, of course. Yeah. <laughs> so how do you... Do you think you're going to get the press? Because I think one of the biggest hurdles for women standing up for rights is that the, the press largely ignores them. Or is the point is the point of it not just to raise awareness, but also to sort of um, breed solidarity, to, to make women show uh, see that there are people standing up for their rights? So in all likelihood, for the reasons that you say, we probably won't get much press. Now, we do have Fox News interested in the event, of course, and we're, <laughs> we're developing a press list. Uh, we know who to contact at the Washington Post, at the New York Times, at NPR. There's a program on NPR, National Public Radio, called 1A, which is based on the First Amendment and grounded in the importance of free speech. This is women standing up and speaking, and we hope that 1A will take an interest you know, I'm skeptical because, as you well know, in the U.S., mainstream media does not platform feminists who talk openly and critically about gender. Mm. So who's coming then? Is it just some Democrats? Uh, is that the sort of woman that's going to come and pick it? So we're nonpartisan. And so now would be a good time to mention the Women's Human Rights Campaign. Uh, the Women's Human Rights Campaign is a nonpartisan global organization. We have a chapter in the U.S., and uh, women can find it at womensdeclaration.com. Please, all of your listeners, if you haven't signed the declaration, please do that. And the US chapter of the Women's Human Rights Campaign is endorsing the March 8th event. It's not a Women's Human Rights Campaign event, but the, the US chapter is endorsing it. Um, mm -hmm. But we're nonpartisan. It's grounded in a feminist philosophy 
but this is a nonpartisan event. This is not about Democrats or Republicans. This is about women demanding that the president uh, preserve and protect the rights, privacy, and safety of women and girls. Women have had it. We're tired of it. Yeah. I know that I've seen some of our mutual friends uh, who aren't, de definitely not Democrats, uh, or on the left, who have even made their own uh, sweatshirts so they can come along uh, and pick it. Uh, it are, are all women welcome? You say nonpartisan. Um, is it... Is it just women? Can other men, can men come? Men can absolutely come. It, this is mainly about women. Uh, this is, you know, again, inspired by women who fought for the right to vote in the United States over a hundred years ago, again, demanding, Mr. President, when will women get liberty? And so this is mainly by women for women, but of course we would love it if men would support us and show up. Uh, that would be fantastic. Yeah. Uh, any woman is welcome to come pick it. I do want to say this is going to be a peaceful event. This has nothing to do with breaking off and going to the Capitol or anything like that. We're not going to be doing that. We are specifically picketing the White House and our current president demanding that women get our liberty. Mm. Well, it's, um, yeah, when women pick it, it, it normally is pretty peaceful. Um, uh, what we find with women's events and organizations here when women gather is that trans activists gather and our trans activists in the United Kingdom quite happily, uh, I'm, I'm happy to report, the ones that turn up in person are sort of um, normally quite affluent students and they have no intention really on uh, violence. They're just irritating. I've seen some of the events uh, that both you have attended uh, and Megan Murphy and so on. And there is a much more, it feels like a much more volatile and potentially violent um, situation. Do you, do you feel that as women who are going to protest? Do you, do you feel quite vulnerable? Are you worried about the threat of uh, these very entitled men coming along and trying to stop you? Of course, of course we're worried about that, but I'm sorry to keep going back to the suffrage movement, but you know those women were beaten and spit on for standing up for their rights. And of course, we're concerned about that. One of the events that you may be referring to is the event that Wolf put on in Seattle at the Seattle Public Library. I was a speaker at that event along with Megan. And as we left the library, there was a mob of something like 300 people who were screaming and shouting and we had to be escorted by security and we eventually made it to the car and and the mob outside that was screaming and yelling shut up turf uh they were banging on the car um it was absolutely terrifying and we don't know if that will happen this time obviously it's a different scenario because we're dealing with covid you know we don't know how many people will show up to support us and we don't know how many people will show up to oppose us if any you know it's it, this is impossible to predict but we're prepared for it do you feel there's a change in um atmosphere amongst women in america since biden's announced this executive order and since his uh the beginning of his presidency do you think women feel a little more urgent about protecting their rights Absolutely, no question. After President Biden signed that order, the Women's Declaration got something like 350 brand new signatures. We had 
something like 50 women uh, sign or, or register, apply to volunteer for the US chapter of the Women's Human Rights Campaign. Biden's order absolutely emboldened women. It angered women and it emboldened women who had previously not been willing to stand up and speak out to do exactly that. Yeah, I think some of us have been talking that this might be, you know, when Trump was in the White House, what Trump provided everybody was a was a figure that we could all point at and we could all blame for everything. And then so some of the things that have been happening had just been seen as if you opposed it, you were definitely on the side of Trump. Well, without him, it sort of has we have been able to reveal some of the deep, deep misogyny uh, throughout many presidencies, but certainly this one. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one one problem that we have here, and I don't know if you have this problem there, is that when conservatives address this issue, too often they do it a little bit unskillfully, right? So for example, we had the former president's quote unquote trans military ban. Um, that in fact was not a ban. All it said was that people are welcome to serve in the military if they're otherwise uh, qualified to do so, but they just had to serve as a member of their sex. And um, when conservatives refer to, you know, transgender military or transgender athletes, it really muddles the, muddies the situation and, and makes it confusing and difficult to talk about. What feminists here want to talk about is the rights, privacy, and safety of women and girls. And, you know, we know what that means. Yeah. Also, if we, well, I mean, now we're in a situation where the trans activists um, PR has been so successful that even if you talk about women's rights, that's often a instant uh, referral to so-called trans rights because it's not enough. It doesn't seem anymore, or maybe it never was, to talk about women and women's rights without our relationship to men. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'm, I'm remembering when when we had the event outside the Supreme Court during the arguments in the Bostock case. And, you know, I stood up there for three or four hours emceeing our event outside the Supreme Court. And there were people, specifically a man pretending to be a woman with a bullhorn shouting in my face for three to four hours. And afterwards I was, you know, I was leaving with the woman who filmed it. And I remember just saying to her, why can't we just talk about women's rights? What happened? What happened? Where did this go? Why can't we just talk about women? Mm. And we know what the word woman means. We're not talking about TWAW. We're talking about women. Yeah. It's really frightening. I think uh, if I didn't know the world was sexist beforehand, I certainly know uh, all too well since joining in uh, this particular fight. So let's remind people when uh, they can meet, where they can get information, uh, Cara. So where can they get any information about this event? Sure. So there's a website. It's, a, it's uh, womenpicketdc.org. There's also a Facebook public page. You can just Facebook Women Picket DC. And for anyone who's willing, if you want to support us and you can't come to Washington DC, there's a campaign on Give Butter. This is an alternative to GoFundMe because GoFundMe has kicked off the Women's Human Rights Campaign. Uh, so it's Give Butter Women Picket DC. If you cannot come, please consider supporting us financially. We would be very grateful. The Biological Women's Hour was created by women, for women, where we talk to women, listen to women, and make connections with women, unashamedly centering biological females.
Now for something a bit closer to home, uh, travelling down to Portsmouth, I'm sure most of us parents or not uh, really are concerned by the rise of lap dancing clubs in our city centres and this particular club uh, that uh, Sasha is fighting is situated in between a school and a church and she is trying to stop the relicensing of this premises. As always, there are many ways to support this podcast through PayPal, Patreon and through the Standing for Women website. Uh, Hi, Sasha. How are you? Hi there. I'm good. How are you? Yeah, I'm great. So somebody, in fact, about five different people sent me your story. Oh, really? uh, Yeah, that (laughs) not buying it are fighting in in particular one uh, license down in between or very close proximity to schools or is it churches uh what's the situation uh, down where you are and and where are you oh well that could be anywhere what you describe <laughs> so we've been fighting we're helping local people across the country really because we can't take this on but we can help um so we help people in sheffield they were fighting a spirit rhino which is a very well-known brand mm. Um, it was basically on campus, on university campus, next door to Student Accommodation District Club. So we were in contact with women who'd gotten out of that strip club and others who talked about what really went on inside, which is typical across the industry. I mean, I would be shocked if there's a club in the country where there isn't large amounts of sexual contact, sex acts, not to mention huge ongoing physical, verbal, sexual harassment and abuse. And that's by management, let alone the punters. I mean, you are treated... It is vile how you treat it as a lap dancer, as a rule, anywhere mm-hmm. in the industry, anywhere, any country, any club. It's absolutely horrendous. And yet, you know, we're constantly told it's so empowering and liberating. You're in control. It's really well regulated. So we helped them. Basically, we shut down Spirit Rhino in Sheffield. They gave up trying to apply for their license eventually. It took two court cases, two high court cases. Um, we ended up having to send people and uh, private detectives in undercover to expose what was really going on in there. And the council still kept licensing it. Eventually, the club has just given up now. It, it's, it's millions of pounds in debt, even though it makes so much money from the lap dancing clubs, which you kind of wonder where all that money going when all these places, nearly all of them, are millions of pounds in debt. They've given up there. So that's something. Um, but really, they're everywhere. They're all breaching all council guidelines they're usually in town centres they're often near women's shelters refuges schools yeah. places of worship and every single council will have a policy saying oh we won't open clubs near these places they open them and they keep on relicensing them year after year mm. even when you bring evidence from women who've left the industry or they have in camden for instance one of the worst councils they've had years and years of gbh near fatal stabbings um financial fraud years and years of it in all of their clubs practically pimps touting outside to take men on to the local brothels where many of the lap dancers work and other women so it is a hub for organized crime it's a shop front for organized crime i don't know how else to explain to mm. describe the lap dancing industry and still they keep on licensing them so you have to wonder <laughs> why what is going on they so, don't even lose their licenses automatically when they catch underage Oh, no. them sort of putting out underage uh, girls. No, no, they seem to be able to do whatever they like. And the ridiculous thing is that it is actually incredibly easy to shut a strip club down on the grounds of location. And if you go down that route, the council has absolute power anywhere in the country. They can shut them down like that. 
for saying you're in the wrong location. I don't care if you were licensed before in that location. We've now come, we're looking at fresh eyes. Actually, you shouldn't be here because you're an extra school or a women's refuge or something. And the clubs cannot challenge that. They can try, but they have to go to the high court. Um, every club that's tried to do that has lost. Usually the judges just toss out the case straight away. It is that easy to refuse a strip club license and none of these councils seem to know it. And so what is a strip club license? Because I, I know that uh, years ago uh, I worked in Bristol uh, oh. trying to shut down or stop the, uh-huh. the relicensing of um, strip clubs. Yeah. So is it something like a, an entertainment license or what is the license that they need? Uh, interesting you mentioned Bristol because this has been a fight for 15 years. I think they're still there. Um, well, until about 10 years ago, they were licensed like cafes. So it was just an entertainment license. Right. And I was part of a group called Object, which back then got the law changed. So they're now licensed as part of the sex industry. And no matter what you think of them, you know, you can't possibly say they're cafes. They're obviously part of the sex industry. <laughs> no. And under that legislation, they have to have their license reconsidered every single year. People can object. You don't even have to be local. You can object. The council was supposed to listen to you. And it is incredibly easy, actually, for the council to refuse to relicense a strip club. The government is re-consulting um, on its violence against women and girls strategy. So we're urging everybody to make sure they see porn and all forms of the sex industry, whether it's sugaring or lap dancing or you know, escorting and street prostitution as a form of abuse, if not violence against women. Mm. That way we have a chance of clamping down on the harm, getting women out. What did you say? Did you say sugaring? Sugar daddy dating, sugaring. Right, okay. And that's, I suspect loads of people have no idea what that is. What is that? Do you really want to know? (laughs) I think I, I think I'm... uh, uh, I think I can work out what it is, but it's just not as bad as it sounds. Well, I mean, it is as bad as it don't sounds. Know. It's very linked again to lap dancing, which is really the soft end of the strip industry and often attracts students. So obviously, students, student debt, they think, oh, I'll work at the local lap dancing club. Or they think I'll do sugar daddy dating, which is where young women, um, there's usually four, five, six, seven of them, are then can be matched up with older men, mm. um, basically for sex. So it's all sugared as, oh, yes, I'm going to be your mentor and I'm just going to take you out for nice meals. I just want a companion. But obviously, you know, you're with a very rich, entitled older man. You talk about Harvey Weinstein's, you know, so it's not just that it's a form of prostitution. You're putting yourself at terrible risk. Right. Assault and rape. So, Um, yeah, this this is on the. It's advertised everywhere. It's on the internet. Loads and loads of young women and some men are doing it. A huge risk to themselves. I really don't understand. Um, I, I was reading the other day that somebody was talking about young women going into strip clubs and so on and, and the balance of student debt. And obviously we, we then reflect on boys that are in the same situation who aren't doing the same. What do you think the girls in particular, or the rather young women, uh, see in a strip club why don't they see it for the exploitative um nasty industry that it is oh well I think that's hugely to do with social conditioning I mean from the day we're born before we're born it's all about you have to look good you have to be pretty um your whole identity as a human being if you're female is how good you look and how sexy you are from a very young age what age do girls stop twerking to Marty Cyrus you know 
So we're all pre, especially now, the younger generation, absolutely preconditioned to think this is empowerment. Mm. So if you can be, you know, objectified, women are objectified all the time, they're treated horribly, harassed all the time. If you're being paid for, at least you're being paid for it, you're getting some bomb back on the men. And then you're told, you know, the harder sale of it is you're told all the time, lap dancing, it's so glamorous, it's so empowering. It's just like having a night out, flirting a bit with the men. It's really well regulated. You make lots of money, you're in control. So you're just absolutely lied to all the time by the mass media, by social media. So, of course, what young women wouldn't want to do that if it fills your kind of psychological need to feel Mm. validated as a human being. Plus, you're making lots of money and having a fun time. So I think if anyone knew the truth about any aspect of the porn and sex industry, nobody would ever choose it. So no yeah. one's going into this with an informed choice. What is the what is the real danger for both the individual woman working in these clubs, but also the environment and the surrounding area where these clubs are placed? Well, talking about the surrounding area, there's been a lot of research across the world that they can create, well, they do create no-go zones. So women will avoid the area, which is in this country, that is a breach of equality law, potentially. Um, uh, obviously, the impact on wider society, which you can't even measure because it's just feeding these and breeding these attitudes of what roles women are supposed to perform mm. and how men are supposed to view women. For the individual, it escalates up to a whole other level. It would be great if you could speak to some survivors, actually. But even if you're in a club where it's clean and there's no sexual contact and I don't believe there is any such a club in the world even if you're there you're basically you're providing foreplay which should be something you do in some kind of a mutual relationship with someone or people that you feel attraction desire for where it's reciprocated but you're doing it for money that in Mm -hmm. itself is psychologically damaging so even if there is no breaches of any rules it's harmful by definition the whole industry is about objectifying women. And even if you choose, because a lot of women in it say, well, I choose to be objectified. It doesn't matter if you've chosen it. It's still psychologically, it is harmful. Being yeah. objectified, choosing to objectify yourself, that's the starting point of it all. It's harmful. And then you add the layer on layer of the sexual contact, the being constantly harassed and accosted and groped and insulted. I mean, called horrible names all the time. Uh, the sleeping with the men in the club, because that's that is very common, I have to tell you. And the women, you know, they kind of have to do it, they have to give blow jobs, they're kind of coerced into it. They're given the better shifts, they're allowed time off, they can keep more of their tips. I mean, that you're fined all the time, the money's taken away from you that you're owed. I know women in some clubs that have owed thousands of pounds. So they use everything they can to keep these women controlled and keep them trapped in the industry as long as possible. And mm. then there's this siphoning off into prostitution. So quite a lot of research, and the Home Office did a study in 2019, I think, which showed that the majority of women they spoke to who were in lap dancing then went on into prostitution. And the longer you're in lap dancing for, the longer you'll go on to actually full-blown selling of sex. And that's a whole other thing you don't want to get into because that is so abusive. I don't, what I don't understand for councils and people that want to make a great impression and sell their towns and um, certainly Bristol, which is where I live for a really long time, you want to try and sell your town as this wonderfully progressive uh, place of equality. And then right bang in the city centre, 
there are multiple places where you can access women's bodies. Um, certainly in the town centre, you can get into a blue cab and ask to go to a, a brothel in a um, residential area. What, how do you think that squares with trying to get the right impression for your town? For example, where I live now, you can't build a house at the end of my lane because that changes the beautiful beautiful aspect of the town as you arrive into it. How do lap dancing clubs pass the beauty aesthetic test? Well, I think there's been quite a long campaign by the sex industry to make them sound like, oh, they are very glamorous, they're very strict. You're prude. If you object, it's a moralistic, prudish objection. Mm. Not actually, it's harmful. It's harming the women in the clubs, it's harming all of us. Um, and also, I think I was going to say something else. They, the way they sell it as, as an equality issue, you're anti-equality, you're against the women working there if you want the strip club shut down. Actually, the strip club's against the women working there, not me. <laughs> That's why you should shut it down. Mm. So they've layered all these different things or they've made it glamorous, empowering. Oh, it's keeping women out of poverty. It's keeping women out of prostitution. They will go underground if you don't. I mean, it's almost like any kind of fig leaf of an excuse the council seem quite happy to hide behind. And I think one of the reasons might be because they're really terrified of lawsuits. I mean, I've been taken to court by Spirit Rider personally. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, to try and get me to shut up about what's happening in their clubs. So that we we I won, not buying it one, and I personally was not buying it myself. Both taking to court. That's a lot. I mean, they've got a lot of money, right? So they can they can create quite a court case, I would imagine. Yeah, go um, to a million pounds, I reckon. But they don't have a lot of money because they're selling like three million pounds in debt on the books. So I don't know quite where this money is coming from for all these court cases. So I think they're threatened by that. They're also totally ignorant of the law. They don't know. I think they're trained by the barristers who represent the strip clubs. And they're trained right. by trade unions who represent lap dancers, who tell you everything's great and just, you know, put a camera here and that will stop anything from happening. It's ridiculous. So they're in no fit position to be making a decision to start with. They don't know how the industry works. They don't know the law. I mean, I've, I've watched, I'm watching like one of the Netflix sort of binge watching programmes at the moment. And it's not uncommon in like loads of different films, films which I really like. And then there's a lap dancing mm. kind of scene in it. And, uh, you know, and you just sort of think, well, I wonder why the director felt it really necessary to represent or to have this particular conversation with a close-up of a woman's uh, bare behind or breasts um, or whatever these women are doing to each other or on their own. And I guess this drip feeding of of it being a normal thing that men do uh, is is really pernicious and very clever. Yeah, yeah. And it's not just lap dancing. You look at Channel 4, Channel 5, especially the weekends after about 10, it's all triple X webcam and, oh, couples do porn together, girls do porn. It's like constant. It's propaganda, mm. really. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's a big part of what is shaping people's attitudes course well there's one there's a I was shown a clip of a video today that's going into schools and it's it's a kind of love story where a guy goes onto a webcam and then ends up having a, I don't know a conversation where he doesn't treat the woman like a piece of meat and <laughs> and that's for schools mm. so I do think that there's a big slippery slope and the certainly the appearance of these places 
on our high streets and in our towns is part of the uh, grooming of our of our girls basically so how can people find what you're doing uh what's your website and I know that your links are really clickable because I've seen them already today. So what's your website? So it's just called notbuyingit.org.uk. If you look up not buying it, hopefully you'll you'll find it. If you can put a link anywhere on your podcast, that'd be excellent. Of course. Um, if you sign up to a newsletter, that is the best thing because we can keep you posted about everything we know about. So quick, easy campaigns. We can put you possibly in touch with other people in the areas because you need bodies you need a bunch of people to be doing this and you can tell us about what actions you want to take maybe you've got a local strip club we want to challenge you we can help you do that well um it's great that you're doing it and and thank you very much for joining me today the biological women's hour was created by women for women where we talk to women listen to women and make connections with women unashamedly centering biological females and now I talk to Conogo Lahair, who was so bemused by the fact that you could just identify as a woman to compete in a race as a woman, that he did just that at Trinity College in Ireland. And I caught up with him to ask him what made him do it. Uh, so there's like this uh, campus run in my college, uh, Trinity College, and um, I signed up for that online. And I saw there's a, a box for female and male. Actually, there's probably more boxes than that. Uh, but I, you know, I was tempted to click the female one. And it was actually just one month uh, before uh, British rapper Zubby had beaten the uh, the deadlift record right. uh, for women by going as a woman. And then uh, I, I just thought to do something along that uh, those lines, you know. And um, yeah, <laughs> so I, I arrived then on the day uh, to collect my race number. Uh, and then the lady there who was organizing it said, oh, so you're indeed uh, male and went to kind of change something. And I said, no, I'm female. And uh, so then I was down as female and then went to do the race. Uh, ended up only coming second, though. So that kind of like, uh, <laughs> you know, ruined the thunder of the, the point I was trying to make, uh, but made it a bit of a funny story, I guess. Well, I looked on your Facebook page and you shared the campus 5K top three results for each category. Um, you certainly ran a lot faster than I would have run it or possibly even driven. Uh, but what was interesting is the top three males were sort of 1658, 1710, 1753. And then the top female, uh, who I understand is a pretty good runner, was 2013, which I guess highlights the difference between the men and women. Um, so did anybody at any point look at you um, with your six foot five man frame and question you at all? So I suppose uh, when I was running the race or like setting up for the race, uh, people wouldn't have known which, which category I was running in because right. everyone was in the same race, but then our times were separated. Uh, so it was only at the end uh, when I went up to get the medal uh, <laughs> for women's number two uh, that there is that kind of... Uh, quietness in the room uh but no at the time like no i didn't have there's no, no kind of like uh big repercussions no one was triggered or whatever you know um so i kind of actually you know felt a little bit bad for kind of i felt like i'd kind of pushed the limits of people's goodwill so i actually i didn't that's why i didn't share the story at the time you know uh because even though like i, I you know I, I was happy with the the message i was making 
I did feel like uh, I kind of like betrayed some kind of goodwill in terms of like people just like kind of like oh come on you know yourself which box you should click uh so but then like I mean now I I with this whole kind of uh issue becoming a lot more prevalent uh I thought it was a good time to share it you know mm. uh so why did you do it? What bothers you about sort of self-ID or is it specifically sports that, that bothers you the most? Well, I don't have a intrinsically like a problem with self-ID. Like, isn't, I think that like, if you want to identify in a social capacity as like a female, male, whatever, uh, I, don't, I don't really mind that, you know, uh, it's just, I think the distinction needs to be made uh, for areas in which we're talking about uh, purposes of a biological sex and you know, then obviously in a social setting, you know, you can do what you want, I think. Uh, but then racists, you know, uh, I think they're kind of more in the category of like, if you arrived at the hospital, like they're, they're referring to the biological sex. Mm. Uh, so yeah, I, I don't have them. Like I got some messages there being like, oh, you hate trans people or whatever. Um, it's just not the case, you know. Uh, <laughs> so it's more about the, the fairness and the sort of structure of sp- of sports or places where biological sex is important that we're pretending it it doesn't matter yeah exactly uh and i think like i think most people like yourself like i was looking at some of your content recently and uh, i think like you make that distinction pretty clear like uh like it's not about like i don't know uh trying to like dictate how people live their lives or whatever it's just about kind of making that distinction where the distinction has a purpose you know mm. um so do you think more do you think more people get it because i i actually think the sort of uh kind-hearted tongue-in-cheek little bit of comedy of a stunt like yours a kinder power to get through to people and make people see that actually this is a little bit crazy uh have you found that yeah no i i mean i've had so many people uh reach out to me and uh say that like uh you know i i wouldn't be able to say that myself uh, or kind of make that kind of message myself, but I totally agree with what you're doing. Uh, so I do think that it uh, certainly has uh, made a message, uh, even if I only came second. Uh, <laughs> so maybe, hopefully, I'll even inspire other people to do the same because I think like if more people were to do this, it would kind of like force the hand of the kind of uh, sporting sporting authorities and such. Uh, so we'll see yet, I guess. Most trans people don't want to invade women's sports. Let's face it. Of course, yeah. But those that do. Uh, there is no biological difference between them and any other man. And I think we are in a bid to try and be kind to these people. We are actually being quite unkind to the women that will lose their, their spots. Yeah, no, it's, it's ridiculous. Like, I mean, you know, people kind of reference like this edge case of like, I don't know, I can't remember the name of the runner, but they're like, oh, this person and like they're, they have like the biology of a, a, a male, but they, they go as female and like, what about them? And like, I'm like, okay, that's, that sounds like an unfortunate situation. Like, I mean, it would be nice if they could compete under like the kind of the gender or whatever that they like uh, identify on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. But in satisfying that real like super fringe edge case, uh, we're then kind of, I suppose, like doing over a bunch of uh, women athletes, female athletes who have really just been putting in loads of work and energy into, you know, probably their primary passion, you know, and to just deprive them of that chance of fair competition. Uh, it's just, it's just, you know, it's, it's not, it's not sensible. Well, on behalf of women, uh, both in the UK and I'm damn sure in Ireland and the rest of the world. Uh, thank you very much indeed for shedding some light on what I think is an insane situation. 
The Biological Women's Hour was created by women, for women, where we talk to women, listen to women, and make connections with women. Unashamedly centering biological females. Well, from the light-hearted of uh, Conogue's action to the loving action by LGB Fightback in the USA, I talked to a couple of the founders of LGB Fightback about their week of action and specifically about their action today on Valentine's Day in partnership with parents of children with rapid onset gender dysphoria. Uh, a group of parents I've been very honoured and privileged to have been speaking to over the last couple of weeks about the plight of their children and the absolute monster of an industry that is against them as parents. Um, uh, welcome, Carrie and Belissa, to Biological Women's Hour. Uh, they are both from LGB Fight Back. Uh, I'm going to come straight to you, Carrie. Uh, who are LGB Fight Back and, and what are you? I wanted to kick this one over to Belissa. <laughs> Belissa, I will come straight to you. Uh, who are LGB Fight Back and what are you? Well, Posey, thank you so much for having us on the show today to talk about our new organization, LGB Fight Back. We're a multi-generational US-based grassroots organization of lesbian, gay, and bisexual people who advocate for the interests of the LGB community. What we're interested in doing is promoting self-love and radical self-acceptance among homosexual and bisexual men and women because we're perfect just the way we are. I like that. Um, and so, Carrie, where did LGB fight back come from? Why have you formulated in sort of 2021, 2020? Yeah, 2020, 2021 and 2021, we're kicking it off. So um, we formed an organization to fight back against the new form of homophobia, uh, which is transgenderism. And transgenderism is the newest form of gay conversion therapy. Uh, the trans movement is backed by corporations that profit from putting children on dangerous drugs and also our community. <laughs> and we're concerned about the medicalization of LGB people as well as children. And that's why we formed, because we want right. to fight back against it. Okay. Uh, I mean, I guess the experience of uh, lesbian, gay and bisexual uh, people is really similar right throughout the globe, unfortunately. Um, now I'm coming to you at the moment uh, this week because you're having a specific week of action and a, and, a, and a launch so that people start understanding what it is you're about. Uh, what, what is your week of action? Yeah, so our, we're having a national week of action um, centered around Valentine's Day. And our, our theme for the actions is really about love. Um, and we're working with a parent organization uh, called Parents of ROGD Kids, and ROGD stands for Rapid Onset Gender Dysphoria. Uh, and so we're working with this organization to send a message to young people that they're perfect just the way they are, that we love them just the way they are, and we want to encourage them, again, coming back to our theme of radical self-acceptance. Mm. Um, and so we have this National Week of Action. Um, we have five parts of the country 
um, which is pretty much covering uh, the whole country, which is really awesome. And so we've got um, actions in Los Angeles, Chicago, Hartford, Connecticut, Philadelphia, and even in the Dallas, Fort Worth, Texas area. So we've wow. hit all spots of the country with this. Wow. And uh, so is it mainly parents or is it other, is it other people that are interested in... Um... What are they interested in? They're interested in kids knowing that it's okay to be lesbian and gay? It's just parents. Um, and it's just parents with our organization backing them. Um, right. Quickly and um, with the, oh, we, we trained them. We had a month long um, training with the parents so they could prepare to do these actions. And so a couple of the groups are going to gender clinics um, and other groups are having more low key actions. But, you know, I think Belissa can, can kick off um, what we want you know, what the parents are saying and why, what our message is to more Yeah, extent. sure. Uh, Melissa, can you start by saying like maybe what one of the actions might look like? Well, Posey, I attended our first action, which was at a gender clinic in um, my city. And uh, that's Los Angeles, where a doctor named Joanna Olson Kennedy is at the forefront of transing kids She's doing mastectomies on 13-year-old kids, and that's not something we say. That's something she talks about in her materials. We had a bunch of parents out front with signs, yelling slogans. We talked to passersby, and um, it was really successful, and we're hoping for even more parents tomorrow. Mm. And do what was the what was the response like then to passers-by did you find were people willing to listen did they have any idea what was going on in that in that gender clinic well i feel like nobody knows what's going on in the gender clinic it's a big hospital it's pretty anonymous looking and people are going in and out with small children the whole time and the thing is they have to pause for the street light. They have to go up and down the paths. And you could tell they were listening to what we said. We weren't angry. We weren't, we weren't mean. We were just saying what's going on in the gender clinic. And I could see the wheels turning in people's heads that they had never heard anything like this before. I think that is one of the most remarkable things about this entire, uh, I don't uh, maybe cult, or movement or ideology is the fact that it is managing to make massive strides and yet most of the public have no idea what's going on. So when you tell these people, um, do you, do you, what's the hope that they tell their friends that eventually the silence is broken? Well, what we're hoping is to just kind of open the dialogue, start putting that information out there and show people that there is more than one side to this cultural phenomenon of girls wanting to be boys and boys wanting to be girls. I don't think they've ever heard that it might not be the best thing for children to put them on drugs and make them lifelong medical patients. Mm. That's right. Um, and, and the other thing is, is that the, that the parents that are dealing with this with their kids is that they are being villainized by their own communities. They're being villainized by the school system. 
Um, and so they can't even get support. And that's why they, their, their organization is a support group for parents all over the country. And there's chapters all over the country of these support groups because this is the only place they can talk about these issues and what's going on with their kids and not be accused of being a bigot. And so part of our goal too with this was to help this organization get their name out there so that other parents going through this can find support and to start to educate the public about what is really going on and how the affirmation model of therapy um, is really a harmful, harmful um, um, track to medicalize kids. And so we also wanted to lend political backing to these parents to say, these aren't bigoted parents. They do affirm their LGB kids for those of them who have LGB kids. And some of the kids, frankly, they don't know yet. They're, they're teenagers. They don't know yet what their sexuality mm -hmm. is. And that's perfectly fine. They don't have to know yet. And, and we just want them to grow up to be you know, healthy young adults, just like their parents. And so you know, if people want more information about um, parents of rapid onset gender dysphoria, they should go to their website parentsofrogdkids.com and also check out our website lgbfightback.org to learn more um often the this uh, argument against trans kids and transing kids and uh the whole uh ideology the the argument is that it's very much like the way that people dealt with uh, gay rights back in you know the 1960s and 70s and and way past that unfortunately uh, why isn't it the same well, Posey, the reason that the trans is not like the LGB is because LGB people are same-sex attracted and we do not need any medicalization. It is not a medical condition to be same-sex attracted. We're happy and healthy with no intervention. The problem with thinking that you're born in the wrong body or that you're the opposite sex is it doesn't seem to stop with self-perception. It seems to involve, especially with children, intense drug therapy that promotes sterilization, lack of sexual development, brain inhibition, bone problems, and these children become lifelong medical patients. And that's why we don't see that the two communities are the same. They're mm. different. And we're being pushed. A lot of LGB people and children who are questioning are being pushed in that direction. And we see it as harmful and it's got to stop. Yeah. yeah. The other thing just to add is that so LGB is, we're, it's based on sexuality. I mean, there's three sexualities. There's heterosexuality, homosexuality, and bisexuality, right? So there's only these three options. And, and just because somebody has same-sex attraction doesn't mean they're mentally ill. It's a biological phenomenon. It's witnessed in all kinds of species of the animal kingdom. There's tons of way, science points to this is just a, a, some little tiny segment of the population happens to have this kind of same-sex attraction. And so we're not mentally ill. We can have very healthy relationships and very good lives. And so, but what we're looking at, and the T here is quite different. One, it's completely backed by big pharma, this movement. It is backed by billionaires and it is backed by, you know, it's these drug companies that want to take somebody who's got some confusion, who's can capitalize on their existing mental health problems. And they can sell this notion that you're born in the wrong body. And then people go, oh, like especially kids, very vulnerable to this narrative. They go, wow, I'm uncomfortable in my body. Yeah, 
puberty is difficult. Puberty is uncomfortable and, and it's not a fun time. And kids are, they're going through all kinds of emotional experiences or hormones are flaring, right? So, you know, this is a confusing time for kids and they're looking for, why is this happening to me? The school system isn't explaining this to them. Most parents aren't explaining this to them, not to blame the parents because parents are working two jobs and whatever else they're doing, you know, trying to survive. So, you know, the thing is, is that these, these kids are trying to find a reason for what's going on with them to explain this discomfort that they're having and this distress. Because often kids get bouts of depression and all this too, right? So, so when they hear, oh, it's because I'm born in the wrong body. It's because I'm, I'm not really a girl. I'm really just a boy. And that explains it all, mm-hmm. you know? And so they're super vulnerable to this narrative and, and they're getting caught up in it. And, and it's frankly, the same thing has happened in the LGB community for the last 20, 30 years. We were really ground zero for transing and medicalizing our condition as being gay, right? So, oh, we've got gay people. Well, how can we make them look straight? I know, we'll pump them full of drugs and chemicals and lop off their breasts. Now mm-hmm. they look like a man. I mean, that's what's really going on here. So we, we got hit as a community very early on with this. And now they'll, big pharma will take any kid. They'll just take anybody now. You know? yeah. so, so that's um, why we have this alliance with these parents. Yeah, well, good for you. Um, Felissa, what do you think, do you think homophobia just really never went away then? Do you think when we thought, when some of us thought, isn't it great? It feels, it feels like we're, we're equal. We've reached uh, a, a great place. Uh, most parents I know, if their kids said that they were gay, they really wouldn't care. Not even like there would be no virtue in that. They would just genuinely really not care. Um, did it just not really go away then? Is that why the trans was able that, transition was able to really blossom in in that community? Well, I think it's a complex issue. First of all, I do think that it is better. Um, homophobia is not as intense as it was when I was growing up where you could not say the word lesbian. Mm-hmm. Gay was just starting to be acceptable. Um, there was no community and then a community did emerge for a while, but what I see is for some some various reasons, um, these billionaires, and I know it sounds trite to say billionaires, but there are these these activist billionaires who see, wanted to create a market for these products that they had developed and they, they saw the homophobia that they could harness Anyway, they came into the community and they harnessed some of the existing homophobia. The way I feel about homophobia is it's probably always going to be there. It's just a question of managing it and dealing with it where it occurs. I don't think it's ever going to be eliminated, but this is kind of a new version of homophobia. They kind of reinvented it as um, thinking that you are the opposite sex. If you don't fit into one box or the other, then you need to change your body because you cannot expand the version of what it could be to be a woman or what it could be a man. You're Mm -hmm. automatically the opposite. And this is conversion therapy to take non-conforming women and men and put them in the box of the opposite sex 
to make them straight. You're turning a lesbian into a straight man and a, a feminine man into a straight woman. And that's clearly homophobic. And I think that the medical industry, which these billionaires are heavily invested into, have seen kind of a cultural homophobia that never went away. It may always be with us, but as LGBT people, we deal with it, we manage it, but it's being weaponized for profit. Mm. Yeah. And then finally, um, Carrie, what do you want um, both the American public and specifically American parents to know? Hmm. Well, I would want the, any parent who has a kid who's claiming to be trans or non-binary to be aware of the implications of where this can go, which is very, very quickly toward down this path of medicalization and down this path of mutilating their bodies and potentially becoming st st sterile and having a lifelong health conditions um, at very, very young ages. And so we want the parents to know what's really, really going on and what would happen if they actually take their kids to a gender clinic or um, because it happens very quickly. I mean, they will give you drugs the first day you show up. Um, there is not a psych evaluation. Uh, it, it's just not the case anymore. A lot of people think that, that there is a process where therapists work with the kids and then they, okay, this kid should be trans. And, but that's not the case anymore. Um, and there's laws all over the United States that have actually made it so therapists have to do an affirming model for any kid who walks in the door saying they're anybody who walks in the door saying they have a trans identity. And that is very, very harmful. And so part of what we wanna do is start to combat those laws um, educate the public about what is actually going on here. And also ideally, you know, a long-term goal would be to pass federal legislation to ban the drugs like the puberty blockers, like the artificial hormones um, on minors, just like they would happen in the UK with Carabelle. So that is definitely something that we're keeping our, our eye on and we need to, you know, get people, build our forces essentially so that we can actually make these things happen. Thank you both very much. I really wish you the best of luck with your week of action. Uh, I have talked to some of these parents and their stories are very, very similar. Uh, in yeah. Incredibly frightening. And uh, the grief they feel uh, is something I think anybody who's a parent would just, I think it would uh, half kill most of us. So um, to Belissa and Carrie, thank you very much and best of luck. The Biological Women's Hour was created by women, for women, where we talk to women, listen to women, and make connections with women, unashamedly centering biological females. And if you're not already inspired enough by the work that women are doing throughout the globe, then let me direct you to our very own Houses of Parliament in the UK, where Joanna Cherry, MSP, really shows women what it means to represent women in our corridors of power. As unbelievable as it is true, Joanna Cherry has to set out the case for using the word woman when we talk about maternity rights. This is a clip from the House of Commons on Thursday the 11th of February 2021 and it was a meeting regarding the maternity rights bill. Thank you, Madam Deputy Speaker. It's an honour and a privilege to follow the, the Honourable Member for Belfast South and the Right Honourable Member for Normanton, Pontefract and Castleford. I, I welcome this bill, but as others have said, it doesn't go far enough to tackle maternity discrimination. 
That said, I'm delighted for the Attorney General and I, I wish her uh, every blessing with her pregnancy. I want to focus my concerns on one aspect of this bill, which has been mentioned already. Why does this bill make no mention of women? It is women who give birth and women who benefit from maternity leave. Is this a reflection of the ideological language which is now seen across schools, universities and the NHS, which bans use of the word women and use of the word lesbian? Why must we deny the fact that there are two sexes and why must we deny that biological sex exists? Why is the government not complying with the Equality Act of 2010? That legislation refers to pregnancy and maternity and uses the day-to-day -day language of centuries, woman, she and her. If this is an innocent mistake, then let's put it right quickly and easily by replacing the word person with woman. But if it's not, let's talk just for a moment about the erasure of women. Most women don't even know that this erasure of their sex class is going on. And when they find out, they are appalled. They, they can't believe it. Those of us who try to warn of the consequences of the erasure of biological reality and the, and the reality of womanhood from legislation are often pilloried. Many politicians are now so enthralled to those who wish to erase women for the purposes of advancing gender identity theory that they call those of us who advocate for women's sex-based rights transphobic, even when we have never done or said anything against equal rights for trans people in our lives, and even when some of us were trans allies before it was fashionable to be such. Madam Deputy Speaker, it is not transphobic to advocate for women's sex-based rights under the Equality Act. It is possible and right to support both trans rights and women's rights. Neither should be sacrificed for the sake of the other. We can have an inclusive society for everyone without doing that. Sex is a protected characteristic for a very good reason. Discrimination against women is rooted in their biology. That is our lived experience. We must find a way to be inclusive without erasing women's biology and women's lived experience from the statute book. So why is this bill doing that? Women are not chest feeders, a phrase we heard earlier this week. Women have breasts and women feed their children with their breasts. Lesbians are same-sex attracted. We are attracted to women's bodies, not men's bodies, and to say we must be attracted to men's bodies is homophobic. These things need to be said, Madam Deputy Speaker, and they need to be said in this Mother of Parliaments. So let's put this bill right and reflect the reality and the law as set out in the Equality Act and supported by the CEDAW Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. I implore every one of you to go and have a look at uh, Penny Mordaunt's response to that, where she claims that a gender-neutral language bill that went through during uh, Jack Straw's appointment is the reason why gender-neutral language needs to be used for a pregnant person. 
because then it's gender neutral. I think Penny misses the point that being pregnant is never a gender neutral option. Anyway, that's it from Biological Woman's Hour. Thank you so much for joining me this week. Thank you to my guests and thank you to you at home listening. This could not happen without the ongoing support of the patrons, uh, the Sunny for Women membership, donations through PayPal, and those that join in the fight and are visible wearing in action the variety of merchandise that Standing for Women offer. See you next time. The Biological Women's Hour was created by women, for women, where we talk to women, listen to women, and make connections with women. Unashamedly centering biological females.